Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for June 5th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining us always, welcome back, Catherine Smith. Hello, greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, glad to have everybody back together, and tonight we have a, a great guest as well from North Carolina, um, political science professor, um, Bowtie Politics is kind of his um, political uh, analysis brand, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Dr. Bitzer's been on with us probably three or four times already, and so glad to have him back given all the things that are going on in North Carolina to discuss. Um, but until then, we're going to discuss some other topics. And right off, um, even though it's been a little more than a week, Catherine hadn't been on with us. And so I want to start off by, Catherine, just getting some of your thoughts, surprises, things that you were happy about, things that really you were, you know, just surprised at, whatever it may be, that happened in the Georgia primary elections. Well, I, you know, I don't think there were a lot of surprises. The couple that were surprising to me was the Democratic race and the lieutenant governor's uh, race. I was surprised that Kwanzaa Hall did as well as he did, and now that we're we're in a runoff between uh, Kwanzaa Hall and Charlie Bailey. So uh, that – I mean, it was a big race, and there were a lot of people running. So, But I was surprised at how well – you know, congratulations to Kwanzaa for doing so well. Um. I was, of course, really disappointed that friend of the show, Wendy Davis, didn't didn't prevail in the primary for the um, congressional seat that she was running for against Marjorie Taylor Greene and that that whole basket of people. It was a big disappointment for me. Um, And then the Secretary of State's race on the Democratic side was also a disappointment. I was hoping that B what B one would make it without a runoff, but now she's in a runoff with D, uh, which is you know D, they're both good candidates. I was just uh, hoping that D, that B would make it out without a um, runoff. Other than that, I wasn't surprised by anything. Um, you know, we have a few runoffs that we'll have to deal with on June twenty first. I guess early voting for that probably starts next week. Um, or maybe the week after. Uh, so those those were my those are my takeaways. Did I miss anything important? No, I mean well, there's so much you can't cover at all. And, I, and Catherine, I'm going to tell yeah. you, I missed Kwanzaa Hall too. But the Sunday before the election, somebody called in. I didn't listen to him. Guess who that was, Catherine? Who? Tim. Tim. You know. Yeah. He was oh, on the Kwanzaa Hall. You know, he before us. Good for you, Tim. That he did well. I just came out of the blue for me. Yeah. 
I, I deserve, I deserve a raise, David. Just thought I'd throw that out there, okay? I, like, hey, give, the give him a raise. You tell me double WLAQ, I'll triple your yeah. salary. You're doing so good. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> since, you, since you're multiplying by that zero, I can do that all the time. Yeah, there um, we this go. is a labor of love. Well, well, Catherine, I do want to ask you about one, and we had the same conversation four years ago. Um, the Democrats had recruited a more high-profile uh, candidate that seemed, you know, kind of fit for the job, and Cindy Zeldin. This time, uh, Matthew Wilson gave up the state house seat to run for insurance commissioner. Didn't even make the runoff. Um, were you? Yeah, surprised that was that? that was a surprise. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. Yes, that was a surprise. Yeah, it really, I, I think those two results, so, you know, two years in a row are pretty instructive. Like, if somebody wants to run for one of those down-ballot races, I think – I mean, you're never going to be, you know, like top-of-the-ticket money and attention, but you're going to have to figure out some way not to think, oh, well, I've got this resume, and everybody's just going to magically know it. I think a lot of the insiders know it, but the insiders are really not – that substantial of a number of the um, primary voters. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, and one final one. I want to jump on to the other side, and then we're going to get on to other topics. Candace Taylor, what did she get, 3.4% of the vote, Tim? Right, right. Yeah, were you surprised at how how, uh, poorly she did? I wasn't. Were you? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I kind of thought she would cut into David Perdue's vote even more, and and obviously he did terrible against Brian Kemp too. So um, I don't know. I just I just kind of thought that the Republicans seem to like that brand of crazy. Um, I don't know. know Unless the special brand of crazy, all right. Yeah, that's uh, what I was gonna say. Like, that's some real crazy there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just figured they would eat that up. Um, all right. Well, let, let's kind of move on, and we're going to move on from Georgia for right now. We may come back later, but I want to move back to the Keystone State. We talked a lot about Pennsylvania, and now we know um, that Dr. Oz, um, resident of Turkey, resident of New Jersey, not resident of Pennsylvania, um, is going to be the Republicans' nominee for the U.S. Senate. Um so um, the numbers just didn't move for Dave, Dave McCormick. I mean, he did the right thing standing down because I, it could have just been held up, but it wasn't going to change. Um, so now Dr. Oz is the nominee. And, Tim, we saw that um, John Fetterman's campaign is already selling bumper stickers that has the New Jersey State um, silhouette of the map on there, you know, pointing that out. Uh, that seems to be one of the number one ways they're going to hit Dr. Oz. Is that an effective strategy? Yeah, I think it is. Residency, voters are very funny about that. Um, yeah. Sometimes they, they let it go by and sometimes they don't, but always it's a good idea to to point that out. You know, one of the best ways to attack your opponent is to say, you know what? Your opponent is not one of us, or or my opponent is not one of us. He doesn't know anything about you because he doesn't live here. He's not from here. He, he He doesn't know what this state needs. He's just an opportunist, 
that's come in from another place to run for an open Senate seat. And he's a celebrity and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, I think that's a very effective uh, line of attack. And and it's a, a truthful line of attack without really getting too personal. I mean, you're not saying this guy's a bad man. You're saying, you know what, folks, this guy don't live here. Well, I, I think that's fair game myself. So, Yeah, and Catherine, let me ask you about the other half of it. Now, obviously, if someone moves from another country, you know, 20 years ago, and they become an American citizen, and they fully embrace American politics and everything else and leave said country behind, you know, to me, that's not really an issue. But as late as 2018, Dr. Oz was still participating in Turkish politics by voting in their elections. Is that a fair issue to bring up? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, yeah, I think you – I mean, it's one thing if you're just an ordinary citizen, but if you're you know, running to, to represent uh, – an entire state, in the case of the Senate, then I think we we expect your uh, loyalty to be to this country, not to not split between this country and another country. Yeah, that would be. I, nice. I mean, I think those. Yeah, uh, it seems like he starts out with a lot of baggage uh, going into this, but um, and to me, you know. Uh, right before the primary, you know, and I knew what we were looking at, although you didn't know Kathy Barnett or um, John, I mean, or um, Dr. Oz or um, Dave McCormick were going to be nominee, but you knew if Dr. Oz was nominee, he was going to have those pieces of baggage in his hand. Um, but now, what the thing we didn't know about was John Fetterman's health. Now, right before the primary, suffers a stroke. We're finding out more about it that it was, um, you know, some more heart issues that he had a few years ago. And probably would have been in better shape, but he kind of ignored some of his doctor's advice, and he's not the first person to do that, which sadly won't be the last. Um, but it sounds like now he's heeding the doctor's advice much more about his health issues. Um, Tim, what's your take on how this will impact the campaign moving forward? Well, um, for for a while after this happened, um, uh, there, there, there was kind of a news vacuum from from the campaign. They weren't really yeah. saying very much, uh, or, or they were just saying, you know, there's not much to this, folks, not much to see here. But now Fetterman and his campaign are, are, are coming uh, front and center with, with updates, and, that, and that's a good idea, you see. If you can get out in front on an issue, you can often control the narrative surrounding whatever that issue is. And as a result, we know a lot more. Uh, it, it, it was more serious a situation than, you know, the public first was led to believe. He, he, he was first apparently informed five years ago that he had atrial fib- fibrillation, and, and he never followed up uh, with a doctor, did any treatment or anything like that. And now he freely says that that was a mistake as a result of not doing any follow-up treatment. He had a, you know, a pretty major stroke. And he said it almost killed him, which we didn't know that either. 
Uh, this could be an issue going forward. I mean, the health of a candidate generally is something of an issue. Um, he still should be favored, but th- th- this could change it. The voters have a funny way, again, of looking at things like this. And quite often they do look at the health uh, of of a candidate because if they're going to vote for somebody, they want that candidate to be able to uh, assume the office and and perform in it, and and that's a reasonable expectation from the from the voters. So you know, going forward, I hope he'll be fine. I hope he'll be able to get out on the campaign trail, um, and uh, uh, I, I hope his health improves and. You know that this becomes a non-issue, but just for right now, guys, I'm going to have to say I think it is something of an issue. Yeah, you say you'd hope you'd hope he'd get on the campaign trail. I would think if he can't get back on the campaign trail, then this would be a major issue. I, my assumption yeah. would be by say July fourth, um, probably even before then, but July fourth, he should be able to resume a, a pretty robust campaign schedule. Um, Catherine, your take on you know this health issue that's come up with John Fetterman. We knew a little bit Tim, about it in morning, morning now. I think Tim makes a really good point. I think it's really going to be important for him to get on the campaign trail, and I think July 4th is going to be too late. Um, I think he needs to, uh, you know, to obviously take care of himself, but uh, be as active and um, visible as possible um, to show that he's in good health or in, in improving his, in his health is improving and that he will be able to handle that. because being a, being a Senator is no easy job. Like, you know, there's a lot of travel, there's a lot of, you know, late nights and um, it's, it's not a stress-free uh position to be in so we need i if i was a voter in that in that state i would want to see that he was in you know that he was recovering quickly and that he would be able to serve well and especially going up against dr oz who's a pretty you know uh active and appears to be healthy opposition. So hopefully he'll be able to step up soon and get on the campaign trail. Yeah, this, and by the way, July 4th, I used that for two reasons. One, that is like the, to me, the absolute last day that I can think of coming up that he needs to be, you know, pretty almost back the full um, campaign. And, and of course, it's just a, it's a date that kind of sticks out in the summer. Um, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. in a way, but I think you're right. But the more time off, the worse in this case. Um, well, Doctor Oz, this is, creates an interesting dynamic. This is a medical doctor running against a candidate with medical issues. Tim, do you think that Doctor Oz will try to play TV doctor, play doctor on John Fetterman on the campaign trail? And I don't mean giving him medical help if they're at some event together. I mean more like. Well, you realize that da 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 da, and kind of use his help against him by using his medical background, um, you know, in the campaign. 
Well, I think the 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 initial thing he's going to do is kind of a little wait and see approach. He's going to see, uh, like what y'all have been discussing, if indeed he is or is not getting out on the campaign trail. If he if he is unable to get out on the campaign trail, of course he's going to use his health as an issue and say. You know, here I am out here. Where is my opponent? If he's unable to continue in this race, we're terribly sorry, but he should tell us. You know, and uh, of course, of course, they're gonna. He, he's gonna use it if, if, if even the smallest opening comes for him to do it. All he's got to do is wait a little bit and see what Fetterman does. If Fetterman comes out on the campaign trail really quickly, there's not going to be an issue to talk about. But if he doesn't, yeah, he 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 will use it. Yes, and one more final thing about this race is um, it was kind of an unexpected, I guess, surprise, is that when John Fetterman had to, you know, leave the campaign drill election night uh, the next few days after the election, his wife, Giselle, uh, stepped up in his place, and I don't know if y'all's gotten to see her, but I think she has been an incredible surrogate, very comfortable um, speaking mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Um, Catherine, have you gotten the chance to, to see Giselle Fetterman uh, speak in a large yeah, speech I've, or in a one-on-one TV interview? I've seen her uh, clips of her, and I agree. She's a good surrogate, but... And and I, I mean I think that's a really good sign, but we need to see him. She can't stand, oh, yeah, she can't time. sit in for him for very long. No, but but I mean I do think it was a happy little thing that happened because now if let's say he gets fully back on the trail, you've raised her profile to where if he's campaigning in Philadelphia. She can go to Erie. She can go to Scranton. Yeah. You know the the B town and, and do an event. Um, Tim, have you got a chance to see her? I have. She is an extremely effective surrogate, and surrogates are a wonderful thing. The most successful surrogate, I guess, in political history was Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, yeah. She she literally acted as the president's leg she she could go out there when he could not and she was so effective at it but franklin roosevelt did not have to be president on television right everything now is on television or instantly uh uploaded via video on the internet uh so the, the surrogate thing will only take you so far. Uh, what she could do is, like, help cut his events, say, by a third by attending them herself. Say if he's got four events scheduled in a day, she could do one or two of them, and he could do one or two, and he could get by with it by saying, uh, folks, I'm sorry, I can't be everywhere at once, and uh, I hope you'll you'll uh you you'll understand that and and my wife blah, blah, and 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 the people would would accept that but but just her going out alone 
that will only go so far. Right. Yeah. I agree. It's, it's an interesting dynamic to watch as this campaign plays out. Well, now we want to move back down south to the Tar Heel State and welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, uh, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Welcome, Dr. Bitzer. Good to be with you. All right. Good to have you on. Well, that same night that the Pennsylvania was having their elections, North Carolina was having results and, and obviously had had one really interesting race that either uh, Tim or Catherine will talk to you about, but it also had a U.S. Senate race, and I'm going to start there. Um, uh, U.S. Senate race, uh, you know, Justice Beasley, she won the Democratic primary uh, pretty straight away, uh, whereas mm-hmm. on the Republican side, there was a primary. And um, it had multiple candidates, but it had the former governor, Pat McCrory, and it had Congressman Ted Budd. And from my vantage point, it looked like Ted Budd had a lot easier time winning the nomination than I would have predicted. How did he get there? Well, I think certainly the dynamic that we were leading into the North Carolina primary showed a pretty healthy percentage, usually 25, sometimes 30 percent, of likely Republican primary voters being undecided. And I think when it all shook out, those undecideds probably broke heavily for Ted Budd. Uh, He got 58 percent to Pat McCrory's uh, very consistent in the polling mid-20s. So the way that I look at the electorate as it played itself out, you know, if you take both Ted Budd and Mark Walker, a former congressman who was trying to also occupy the Trump lane within the North Carolina Republican Party primary electorate, if you take their two percentages, you're looking at two-thirds of North Carolina primary voters basically voting for the Trump-designated or a Trump-like candidate. And then you had Pat McCrory, who was trying to, you know, present a very conservative uh, perspective, but who has been somebody who has been recognized as kind of more moderate than necessarily a Trump candidate, get 25% of the vote. So the way that I kind of view those dynamics, North Carolina's Republican base is still very much a Trump-aligned base. The moderates, the you know, kind of Main Street uh, Republicanism is very much in the minority in this state. Yes. Um, now, I know early on Ted Budd had the, you know, you know, stick it to the libs campaign ad we've seen a lot of places. And he had the monster truck, and that kind of jumped out. And then, of course, he had the Trump endorsement. Was that ad more effective than, say, the the Jessica Taylor that shot the piece of wood and the rocket or, you know, set things on fire and all the other things we've seen this campaign season? Was the monster truck ad uh, just a more effective vessel, or was it something else? Well, it, it, it was probably more I – would, I would suspect it was more the cue or the signal that was sent by Trump with his very early endorsement of Ted Budd. Remember, that endorsement came last summer, 
and Bud had been basically waiting to kind of start playing that up at the beginning of this year. He also had the ad about the wall on the southern border and a gun, you know, kind of uh, positioned in his jeans. Uh, so I, I think that there were a lot of dynamics. I think this is where the North Carolina Republican Party is. Remember the gentleman who is giving up this seat, who is retiring, Senator Richard Burr, was one of the Republican senators who voted on the second impeachment to find President Trump guilty. Immediately after that, the North Carolina Republican Party came out with a censure against the sitting senior Republican senator of this state to decry what he did in his vote. So I just think that, you know, as, as we talk more and more about the Republican Party, it, it is very much in this state, I think, beholden to the former president. Yes, and then one more question uh, about Pat McCrory. After he lost, he uh, kind of announced that he may be leaving politics. Uh, kind mm-hmm. of came off the sour grapes to me. Like if you're – if you were thinking about leaving politics or if this happened so quickly, what if you won? Um, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to take my ball and go home. What's your take on if this will actually happen or why Pat McCrory um, announced this? Well, I think at the same time, I mean, he has run several statewide campaigns. Uh, he was the longest serving mayor of Charlotte, uh, one of the largest cities in the state. He has been in the public eye for a very long time. And I think during that same press conference, that same discussion, uh, he also talked about the fact that the Republican Party has changed, and he's not sure that he recognizes it. Uh, He always positioned himself as kind of a Reagan Republican. In fact, several times he would say he was an Eisenhower Republican. I think that those kinds of Republicans are just, you know, a dying breed within today's modern Republican Party. And I think he has real concerns about folks like Madison Cawthorn and others that are very much the typified Republican of Trumpism in this state. And so I think, you know, certainly he, he is probably looking at other venues at this point uh, just to say, you know what, I've tried this several times, I've been governor, I've been mayor, but maybe it's time because the party has moved beyond me. Okay, I, I, I just kind of find it odd that this gentleman's like, I'm so moderate I, I'm from the roots of Eisenhower, and yet the way the country was introduced to him was through the bathroom um, that made it so controversial, and the uh, <laughs> NBA All Star Game got pulled, and everything else. Yep. Um, how does how does that kind of fit into his legacy of I want to be this moderate leader? Yet I introduced this controversial strain of attack politics that the Republicans have just you know gone on hyperdrive with. Well, I think certainly HB two, the what has been you know known as the bathroom bill. Uh, certainly will be a component of Pat McCrory's legacy. We also have to remember that Pat McCrory came in two years after the Republicans took over the North Carolina legislature. And even at that time period, 
the Republicans in the legislature were more suburban and much more rural in their orientation. Pat McCrory coming from an urban perspective, you know, much more moderate in his views. And I think, you know, with the legislation on HB2, you know, that came out of the legislature, and that was going to be a bill that either Pat McCrory could sign, could let it go without his signature and become law or veto it. But at the time, the Republicans had supermajority numbers to override their own governor's veto if he had vetoed it. So, but he became the point person. He became the lightning rod uh, as governor for that particular bill. And I think that that will be part of his legacy. I think, you know, the, the, both the ground and the political parties, I look at it as having moved underneath Pat McCrory's feet, and he didn't keep up with the times or wanted to be that kind of classic moderate Republican that is more and more, you know, a minority within his own party. Yes, I'd be interested to see. Uh, of course, now I've got to move on to the general. Um, as it stands on June 5th, where do you see this uh, general election um, between uh, Justice Beasley and Ted Budd? Well, I look at it, you know, we're, we're still several months out, and we've got a lot more to cover in terms of the dynamics between now and November. But the way that I, as a political scientist, kind of look at this environment, this is shaping up to be a classic midterm election. The president's party is going to be on the ballot. The president is going to be on the ballot. It'll be a referendum. And economic issues, you know, certainly inflation, is going to be at the forefront of most voters' minds. Here in North Carolina, registered Republicans tend to have also the highest turnout rates in elections. So those kinds of basic fundamentals, what we call the fundamentals of an election, are pretty much set in stone by this point. And, yes, we will have issues. We will have the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on abortion. We'll have the January 6th committee hearings. You know, perhaps inflation starts to cool by the time we get into the fall. But all the dynamics point to right now an advantage to the Republicans, particularly for the U.S. Senate race. So I think it's going to be an uphill climb for Beasley and the Democrats, but she is in a unique position. She has run statewide. Uh, She's got the resources and the capabilities if the National Democrats decide to invest in this particular state in that particular race, she could make it very competitive. So this is kind of setting up a classic North Carolina competitive race, but right now the dynamics tend to point towards a lean Republican uh, dynamic at this point. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to pass it along, and that probably means we'll uh, cover some other exciting areas of this um, political landscape in North Carolina. Tim, um, go ahead and pass it to you. Uh, good evening, Dr. Bitzer, and thank you for being with us again tonight. You said, that unaffiliated, you said that unaffiliated voters are the largest uh, voting bloc now in North Carolina. Are they truly unaffiliated 
are do they tend to lean conservative or liberal when they vote? That That is the $64 million question, honestly, here in North Carolina politics. Uh, in fact, uh, three other colleagues of mine who are all political scientists, the four of us are working on just that question right now. And what we have been able to find is that there are different types of unaffiliated voters. You know, some of them, sometimes people think, well, if you're unaffiliated, you're independent. You're a swing voter. You go back and forth between picking the two respective parties. And I think that there is a healthy number amongst the unaffiliated that show that tendency. But then you've also got the factor of potentially are these folks that are just disgusted with party labels that want the flexibility of being able to vote in either party primary, but they don't want to be identified as a true partisan. They see the polarization that is going on. I think there's something in that. I think that there's also the fact, like in so many southern states and states around the country, we see that local politics really drives a lot of the dynamics. And if you live in an area that is overwhelmingly Democratic or overwhelmingly Republican, you know, the deciding factor, the deciding election is your primary election. That's, you know, typically maybe there's, it's an uncontested general election. So they want to be unaffiliated to perhaps vote in the party's primary that's really going to make a difference. So we're kind of looking at it as, as different uh, answers to that question, but the dynamics of having the largest group now of registered voters be unaffiliated is going to be a challenge for both political parties. The one interesting dynamic that we do know about unaffiliated voters is that they have the lowest turnout rate of any of the major groups. Registered Republicans are consistently at the top, followed by registered Democrats who tend to mirror the state turnout rate. Registered unaffiliateds don't show up at, at the same levels as partisans. So these are perhaps the less engaged kind of voters. We also know that a healthy number of them are under the age of 40. So they are millennials and Gen Z. In fact, in some uh, recent statistics, if you take just the voters between the ages of 18 and 24, almost half of them are registered unaffiliated. So this dynamic is something that we have to watch here in North Carolina very closely, as I think it's happening across the country as well. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what about uh – geographical considerations would you campaign differently with unaffiliated voters say in the suburbs of uh, Charlotte as opposed to unaffiliated voters over on the coast at at, at uh, Wilmington would would that be two very different types of voters yes very much so and and in fact you know the classic national narrative is the fact that the the urban cities are strongly Democratic and the rural counties are strongly Republican. And that trend tends to hold in North Carolina. The big difference with this state is 
almost have to divide the suburbs into two different localities. One of them mm-hmm. is what I call the urban suburbs. So for Charlotte, for example, as you referenced, that's in Mecklenburg County, but it doesn't take up all of Mecklenburg County. So there are pockets of suburbia in Mecklenburg County that I call urban suburbs, and then you've got the surrounding suburban counties. Those surrounding suburban counties are the most Republican. They are more Republican than your rural counties. And so Mm. if you are putting together a strategy in North Carolina, if you're targeting suburbs, you've got to think about, am I in the urban county, which is the most competitive suburban areas, or am I just stepping across the county line into heavy Republican areas? And for both mm-hmm. parties, they have to kind of tease out that strategy of geography just as important as anything else to, to really, you know, show where the dynamics play themselves out. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move for a moment just south of Charlotte to um, Congressional District 13. Okay. You have stated that the CD13 race will be one of the most competitive in the country. Could you lay out to our listeners exactly what makes it that way? Yeah, so the the 13th congressional district is actually just south of Raleigh, which is in Wake Raleigh, County. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. It, trust me, we're still those of us living in the state are still trying to <laughs> to position ourselves where all yeah. these new but congressional I, I, districts I, I, are. Yeah, my, the, yeah, I've got no excuse. I knew it was south of Raleigh and said Charlotte. That's <laughs> <laughs> quite all right. Um, you know, the 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 district is actually it it represents that suburban classic dynamic that I just talked about. About half uh-huh. of it is in Wake County, which is Raleigh, with a lot of suburban mm-hmm. areas in the south. But then you jump over into Johnston County, which is a heavy Republican dis- uh, county. And if you look at the 2020 elections, presidential U.S. Senate governor's race, that district is about a 52-48 Democratic district. But that Mm -hmm. can go very quickly one way or the other. And I think as I talked about with the Senate race, you know, the fundamentals, the environment just points to an advantage for Republicans. So you're probably talking about a 50-50 at best district. It could be slightly lean Republican at this point. And again, all determines on who shows up to vote. And I think that that district, that 13th congressional district, is going to be one of the most expensive in the country, and it's going to be one of the most competitive and could be a good bellwether as to how both parties may be performing come November. Yeah. And is that your only competitive congressional race in the state? For right now, that's the one I think everybody in the state is really watching. Um, Mm -hmm. There are some of us that also look at the first congressional district. That's G.K. Butterfield's uh, district. He is retiring. A state senator, Don Davis, has secured the Democratic nomination. It is a very uh, almost majority minority district. 
but it is mm-hmm. a kind of 55-45 Democratic district. And the Republicans had the opportunity to, to nominate a more moderate Republican who could have won that seat. Instead, a MAGA Trump Republican secured the, the nomination. And I think in that kind of environment, in that district, it may be competitive, but the likelihood is that Trump Republicanism won't play well necessarily in minority communities, which is so predominant in that district. Okay. I got, I got one more person I want to talk about, and then I'm going to pass it on to Catherine. I have wondered, especially considering the history of recent elections in, in North Carolina, why has Roy Cooper succeeded electorally when when other Democrats, including on the national level, obviously, have have just have just not succeeded in ways that he has? I think Roy Cooper is probably among the last of the Democrats who have the key to unlock uh, North Carolina politics. He's very much in the strain of a former four-time governor of the state, Jim Hunt. And Jim Uh Hunt was very much a kind of classic, moderate, sometimes conservative Democrat who could win in rural North Carolina. And if you look at, you know, kind of the history of the state, we had huge swings of voters that would vote Republican at the presidential level for George W. Bush by 12 percentage points in 2004, and then flip to elect Democrat Mike Easley for governor by 12 percentage points in the exact same 2004 election. So you would have a 24-point swing of voters, and that number has shrunk considerably but Cooper has been able to, you know, thread that needle of the classic Democrat who can win statewide by appealing and pulling off some suburban voters and more rural voters, whereas they would normally be voting Republican for president and U.S. Senate. It'll be interesting in 24 when all expectations are Josh Stein, our current attorney general, may be running for the Democratic nomination for governor. Can he replicate Roy Cooper's success? We'll just have to wait and see. Well, I thank you for that, Doctor. And with that, I am going to send it over to Catherine for some more questions. Catherine? Catherine, are you with us? I'm here. I'm here. I just had to find my mute. <laughs> I couldn't find it. Um, it's it's a it's a you know that's isn't that the issue with everybody these days? Can't get it's, off. It's mute. still anyway. after two years. It's still Zoom muting. Yes. <laughs> I know it's crazy, isn't it? Um, you'd think all the hours I spend on Zoom that I would have this figured out. Anyway, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. It's great to hear all about what's happening in North Carolina. I, of course, can't help but ask about Madison Cawthorn. <laughs> I, I'd be shocked not, if his name didn't come up this evening. So. <laughs> I don't know why they left that question to me, 
but apparently they have. So what's your take on all that? Well, it, it you know, Madison Cawthorn is a fascinating, interesting character to say the least. Um, <laughs> you know, when, you know, it, it, it is very much, I think, the continuation of Trumpism in, in an elected official because early on he said that he wasn't so much concerned about governing or legislating or policy development. He was more concerned about comms, which is communication. And certainly he played that to the hilt. What we were looking at in the primary election that he was defeated in by a state senator was what influence would registered unaffiliateds, to go back to our earlier discussion, have on the potential uh, renomination or the defeat of Madison Cawthorn, who by all accounts, if you take in all of the negative news, if you take in all the self-inflicted wounds, if you take in the fact that he was a first-term incumbent seeking re-election, which is the most vulnerable time for an incumbent, you would have to say, this guy's going to lose and he's going to lose big time. But he had Trump's support. And what we have found in some of the data is that there was a healthy number of formerly registered Democrats at the beginning of 2022 who re-registered as unaffiliated and who participated in the 11th Congressional District GOP primary. You also had a very healthy, the most, the highest percentage in the state of registered unaffiliated voting in the Republican primary. So I think what doomed Madison Cawthorn with all the baggage that he had were the fact that registered unaffiliated came in and said, enough. It also didn't help matters that the state senator that was the primary challenger to him was from the same county as Madison Cawthorn, Henderson County. And he basically was able to win his state senate district uh, in, in that area and deny Cawthorn his political base. There was also a lot of discussion of the fact that Cawthorn, yeah, that Cawthorn didn't pay attention to constituent services. If you're not going to pay attention to the voters, the voters aren't going to pay attention to you. Well, I think that's really Mm. interesting that that's the sort of thing that will draw out those unaffiliated voters, right? Like if, if, if the outrageous behavior is what what draws them out, then you'd think we'd see a lot of them in this upcoming election. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I have behavior. I, it, it, that could be the case, but you know, the eleventh, you know, it was there. There were several weeks where it was literally something new every day that came out about Madison Cawthorn. And I just think at some point the voters tend to go, 
enough already. We don't like well, this I, kind of attention. I also think that you make a really good point about constituency services because I think that's a message that gets gets carried along to people, right? Like if you try yes. to get something done and your congressman doesn't, congressperson doesn't respond, you're going to tell your neighbor, right? You're going to talk about it at church. You're going to talk about it when you go have lunch at the deli or wherever. And that message gets around quickly uh, through word of mouth. And, and it doesn't, it's not uh, well received. Well, I had another, I did have another question. Um, sure. I'm, I'm curious. I know, I mean, I know that we're all expecting the economy to be the most prevalent issue that people will be voting on in this year. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, a, a combination of, you know, jobs, the economy, the stock market, you know, the, all, the, all the things that are um, bubbling up right now. What other issues are North Carolinians looking at or concerned about? I mean, are, is there any talk about guns? Is there any talk about abortion? What are the things that, that seem to, you know, get people's attention? Yeah, I think certainly pocketbook issues will be the dominant factor. I'd be surprised unless there was something monumental. Uh, I've learned not, not to say anything definitive because you never know what is going to happen right. in the next oh, yeah. kind of five months. So that's just the, the training of a political scientist to say. But I think, you know, issues certainly as we have seen with guns, will be something that that will uh, resonate with certain sectors on both sides of the political aisle uh, about that issue. You know, when we get the final decision and opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court on the issue of abortion, that is certainly going to, again, potentially rile both sides uh, for different reasons, but I think could be motivating factors for November. I think the, the January 6th committee hearings and whatever the, the report, if it's released before the November elections, could, you know, be a kind of motivator potentially as well. And then there's just simply the unknown factors, the X factors that we don't know what's going to happen come Labor Day to November, you know, what kind of dynamic there is. I think what we do know from political science research is that for the vast majority of the electorates in any year, the vast majority of the voters make up their minds before Labor Day, which is kind of the classic kickoff to the campaign. So if you're talking about potentially two-thirds of the voters having their minds made up, and a lot of it is due to partisan loyalty, you're going to get a shrinking pool of undecided voters moving into November that, you know, could tip the balance one way or the other, but that pool is just shrinking considerably as we go through the general campaign. Issues come up. There could be, you know, potential bombshells that go off uh, in October, the uh, classic October surprises. But I think North Carolina voters, their main focus right now is economic issues. Jobs are plentiful, but 
every day you go by the gas station and you see it's gone up, the price of gas has gone up yet again. You go into the supermarkets, the food lines, the Harris Teeters, the Publix, you know, you see the price of eggs, the price of milk, the price of bread. That's going to have a kind of reinforcing daily impact on voters that they will generally tend to take out on the the party in power, and that's the Democrats this year. I have another question. I don't know. Do you have early voting in uh, North Carolina? We do, yes, both by mail and in person. And have you seen any change in um, the way campaigns, uh, you know, mount their, you know, last-minute campaigns related to early voting? We haven't really seen much difference here in Georgia yet. We're still – there's still a lot of uh, activity in that last weekend. And I'm just, you know, right up until that Tuesday. I'm just wondering if that's – if that if there's any trends in uh, you know addressing that early vote because you know more and more people given the opportunity are are voting early either by mail or in person so have you have you seen any change in campaign strategy? That's a great question and one of my research interest areas. I'll give you a very simple statistic in the election for 2020 in November. November of 2020, 80% of the 5.5 million ballots that were cast that year, 80% came before Election Day. Only 20% were cast on Election Day. And that trend has been moving more and more early voting. We have a very long time period, about two and a half weeks, of early in-person voting. You can get your mail-in ballot 45 days ahead of the election. And North Carolina voters love to be able to cast their ballots simply because I think they've got their minds made up. They want to go ahead and bank their ballot. And that, to me, signals that there is a, a decreasing pool of people, you know, waiting until Election Day Maybe they're undecided. Maybe they haven't quite made up their minds on some races and they're waiting until the last minute, kind of like college students writing papers. But, you know, (laughs) this this dynamic, I think I'll be particularly interested (coughs) to see how this plays out in Georgia, because if you're anything like North Carolina, I think more and more the campaigns recognize that people are going to vote early. They're going to target their voters. They're going to know that their votes have been banked, and they don't have to worry about some of these voters. Yeah, that would be – I mean, I think that would be the ideal scenario for a campaign, to be able to narrow that target, you know, narrow it down, narrow it down to where they, you know, they know who's voted and who hasn't. Um, But I I don't see any – I mean, I think I see that strategy, but I don't see any – um, I still see that last-minute push in the last few days with advertising and all the other things. That I, I, sometimes I watch it, I'm like, "Why are you bothering with spending this money? Everybody's already, so many people have already voted." <laughs> yeah, but, and, and I know, think they, they have the money; they need to spend it. I guess. 
Right, right. And I think one of the key things that I'll be watching, particularly in Georgia, is, you know, do, do you start to see each election cycle more and more people taking advantage of early voting? And potentially, do you start to see the advertising creep up even earlier? I mean, we we didn't get 24 hours past the primary election here in North Carolina when we already had the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, launch the first negative ad against Democrat Sherry Beasley. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Somebody who has to deal with the onslaught of negative advertising descending the airwaves. Uh, but, you know, in North Carolina, you can get a list daily of who has submitted early ballots for campaigns. That's a goldmine of data and information to where they can say, you know what, this voter has already voted. We can move on to the next voter and just kind of work their way down the perspective list. I hope they do that here. I mean, I know they have access to that here, and there's been a little bit of it, but I don't think it's been – I don't think the system for that has been perfected because I'm still – you know, I still get texts and emails and calls and whatever, even after I've sure. really voted. But hopefully yeah. that will – that system will kick in and we'll be able – because I think that's the other thing. You start to annoy vo- voters who've already voted. Yeah. Not that it matters because they've already voted, but yep. well, thank yep. you very much. I think I need to pass it back to David so we can okay. close out the section. Thank you. Yes. Well, Doctor Bitzer, before I ask the question, I always uh, close off on busy guests like yourself. It reminded me of um, some of your other work. Just the last uh, week or two, I watched the season finale of The Simpsons. <laughs> And they had their most political episode I had ever seen. Um, before I ask that other question, one, did you see it? And two, do you plan on writing anything on that episode? <laughs> I, I have to be honest. I have not seen the episode, so I can't, I can't speak to that. Um, I have taught a course on The Simpsons, but it's been years since I've taught it because, honestly – Unfortunately, college students today don't watch The Simpsons. I don't know what it is, but the last time I taught it, you know, I had a class of 20 students. We would watch the episodes in class. They'd be furiously taking notes. I'd be laughing my head off in the back of the room. Nobody was laughing. I don't think, you know, the the popular culture, uh, you know, references may be lost on this generation now. But uh, I'm glad to hear that the Simpsons are still uh, fine-tuning their satire towards American politics because it's well-deserved. Well, they even had Robert Reich do some voicing. And I'll go ahead and tell you, on behalf of all your students at Catawba College, I'm going to give you some homework. You're going to have to watch that episode. You're going to spend the 20 minutes, uh, find it somewhere before you have your own in a few months because you will enjoy it. Anybody that's written about the politics and the Simpsons, but uh, my question for you is, do you have any projects or writings in the work or anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, when, as I mentioned before, a group of us are really interested in this unaffiliated voter in North Carolina. We're going to be doing some really deep uh, dive into the data, and we'll be posting some of that information at our blog. 
which is oldnorthstatepolitics.com. And uh, that, that's one project that we're on. Uh, but we've got a lot of things kind of in the hopper. North Carolina politics, uh, as, as one reporter you know, said to me, and I posted on, on my Twitter account, uh, you have a very interesting state for politics. And I kind of responded, you have no idea. So uh, I, 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 I have to send my condolences to y'all down in Georgia because I, I went to UGA uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And y'all are now experiencing what North Carolina has experienced since 2008. So uh, welcome to the big leagues, I guess I should say, uh, to folks down in Georgia. Yes, it's still interesting, but it got a whole lot less interesting now that you don't have the purveyor of elderly cocaine orgies and incestual <laughs> porn movies um, parading around. But, uh, Dr. Bitzer, we thank you so much for coming on, and we have a feeling that the Tar Heel State will stay intriguing and maybe closer to the election in November. We'll have you back on. Happy to do so. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, Thank you, so Thank you sir. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, that was Dr. Michael Bitzer, Catawba College, um, Old North State Politics, Bowtie Politics on Twitter. Always love having him on. And by the way, Tim and Catherine, if you can find it, that Simpsons episode is just a, a real political work of art. I can't recommend it to enough. We were going to talk about some other things, but this kind of sets up. We were going to discuss a Florida topic or two. But next week we're going to have on our friend from Florida, Craig Pittman. Now, he's going to discuss his book, The State We're In, um, which talks about some real characters from the state of Florida. But I have the feeling after we discuss that book with him, we can talk about the uh, most rotten character in their state, um, and some things he's done to Special Olympians and the others next week. So until then, in the Kudzu Vine. Good night, Good night guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and